Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Law and order has shot up the political agenda in the last year or so, with the chaos in the channel, damning reports into the culture of the Met Police and constant problems in our prison system. Just this week, we've seen the firebombing of a migrant centre in Dover and uproar over the treatment of asylum seekers at an asylum centre in the Kent village of Manston. Few commentators are better equipped to address the range of security issues than CapEx regular Ian Aitchison, a former prison governor, Home Office civil servant and community police officer, and now a senior advisor to the counter-extremism project. Ian brings a huge wealth of experience to bear in his regular pieces for CapEx, and in a media landscape where essential reading has become a bit of a cliché, Ian's pieces genuinely fit the description. And I hope you find his contribution to our podcast equally essential listening. Ian, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on the CapEx podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on, given that you are a very regular contributor to the site on a variety of themes, actually, you've written about Northern Ireland, uh, prisons, terrorism, policing, the general political sort of fray. You describe yourself on Twitter as an unbiddable Tory, um, which hmm. I think is a rather nice description. But just for our listeners, I mean, give us a brief kind of resume of what you've done, because you've worked in a, a number of quite interesting places, including um, prisons and the Home Office and so on. So what, what's your kind of backstory, as well as being a writer? Well, you know, thanks for having me on. Uh, John, and thanks for continuing to um, uh, you know, deal with my promiscuous output that you've just described. Uh, yeah, uh, the the phrase shallow and wide probably uh, refers to my interests, but you can probably tell from my accent, which you're very good at uh, simulating, uh, that I'm from Northern Ireland. I was born in uh, Fermanagh, close to the border, and brought up when the troubles ran hot, so that probably has something to do with my lifelong professional interest in bad guys and some girls and how to stop them because terrorism was a a, a signature to my formative years um, because of where I lived and because of the uh, insurgency that was uh, all around me. So um, I don't quite know where I went from that apart from via Durham University, where I did politics into some uh, career misfires uh, for example, I, I got on the graduate milk round. That's probably something that anybody under 35 doesn't even understand. But there was a kind of conveyor belt of you know, graduates 
into managerial posts and I ended up in Coots Bank, uh, which was very, um, my, my parents were very, my mother in particular, very impressed by wearing a frock coat and, and being in the Queen's Bank. But, um, you know, they, they came to me about a month later after I'd started this prestigious job and said, we're not even sure you can add, really. Should we just write this off as an unfortunate mistake? And, uh, you know, I agreed. And um, uh, then, you know, did various other things, poked about, got involved in um, local uh, radio in Radio Ulster, which is the uh, uh, BBC's local radio station there. and did some work there for... Um, uh, radio Ulster Radio 5, um, writing some satirical things was quite enjoyable, but it obviously wasn't paying the rent. And I come from a big service family. So ultimately, I ended up um, deciding between whether to join the Royal Ulster Constabulary as a graduate entrant or the prison service. And most of my family sort of took me to one side and said, you know, in, in uh, the inimitable tones, get you over the other side of the ditch. Uh, and there, that's all she wrote, really. Started in the prison service, continued my interest into terrorism and counter extremism through that, from officer into governor. And uh, I, I eventually left the prison service in uh, 2001. I stayed in youth justice. Uh, and um, I, I think I, I can't, I'm a bit hazy of the details, to be honest with you, but there's a being the director of inter international charity prisoners abroad, somewhere there in the mix, then uh, the youth justice board, then uh, the home office where I was director of community safety uh, for uh, Southwest England, which involved being in charge of our contest counterterrorism strategy. So you can tell I don't get out enough from all of that. Uh, shall I just stop there? Because it sounds dreadfully self-indulgent to go any further. Oh, no, we're, we're all for a bit of self-indulgence uh, on the CapEx podcast, <laughs> um, including indulging our own articles. And you've written hmm. a piece for us this week, um, in, in the, the yesterday um, about this great recruitment drive that the government has been on. So mm. since in the 2019 manifesto, one of the big pledges was 20,000 extra police officers. And on the surface, it's a very good example, actually, of how kind of political promises aren't, you know, always what they crack up to be, because on the surface, it looks like we're doing pretty well. We've got, mm. you know, thousands of new police officers. Mm. But what your article points out and what a recent uh, report from Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary says is that a lot of these new recruits are not necessarily mm. the kind of people you want uh, putting on the uniform. So what, what's going on here in your view? Well, there's a whole uh, coalition of things going on. Um, and, and certainly one of the things I believe is the rush to uh, recruit the extra 20,000 in the uh, manifesto which, you know, let's not forget, is a, a direct result of the, the chaos that was caused by what I would still view as criminally stupid austerity cuts that led to a, a mass exodus of experience from our police services across the country. So there's been a mad scramble, and we might come on to the, uh, the, the similar um, and even less successful effort by the prison service, but there's been a mad scramble to put boots back on the streets. Now, I, I think... One of the consequences of that is a, a failure or a deterioration in the recruiting and vetting process, which has meant that, you know, as um, uh, the uh, inspector of constabulary who wrote the report you're referring to, Matt Parr, said that it was too easy for the wrong people to join and stay in the police. Um, now, that's just one consequence. I, th I think this issue with vetting extends be actually beyond the emergency uplift of, of police officers. So there, there is a, you know, 
as I've referred to in the in the uh, article, there's a whole load of other issues about a lack of uh, communication between the various functions, um, the the professional standards functions, the recruitment functions, the counter corruption functions within the police service. That means that even if you've got a wrong one in the ranks, effectively, it's quite hard to spot that person and deal with uh, their behaviour. Because of, uh, as uh, I, I, th this is an interesting little um, aside here. Matt Parr, who's the inspector of Catabria, who wrote this uh, really uh, distressing and, and quite devastating report on failures of vetting, um, is a Durham graduate. And, and as you know, uh, Joe and I spent a lot of time hyping Durham, where I went as a, as a, as a good place to be. But, but Matt Parr went to Hatfield College. Uh, you know, Durham's a collegiate university in Durham and Hatfield at the time that he was there had quite a reputation as being a very unreconstructed environment. Um, uh, it was an all male college at the time. And there was, you know, there was there's quite a lot of uh, stuff around the fact, uh, you know, and, and uh, local sort of lore around the fact that it wasn't a great place for, for women to, to spend any time around. And I wonder if that's had an impact on his thinking. Perhaps not. But, you know, one of the extremely uh, awful sort of things he reveals in his report is the culture of misogyny and casual sexism against female staff and the police. Uh, and that really seems to be almost out of control in places. And, you, you know, you simply cannot have a work environment where women are subjected to, to the level of, of uh, sexual misconduct that the, the, the sampling that uh, the, the inspector has, has, has revealed demonstrates. I mean, it, you know, you, you shouldn't have that, have that in the 1980s, let alone the 2020s. So it's something the police service really has to deal with. And it is quite difficult because, as I've said in the article, and I've said before in uh, articles that I've written about policing, when you're in an environment where you are under a high degree of stress and team working is absolutely essential and camaraderie that knits those teams together, it, you know, is really important as well. You know, you can't expect that people are going to behave impeccably and perfectly all the time in, in relation to how they deal with each other. And there will be a certain amount of banter, and that's actually quite important. Uh, that's the social glue that keeps people together. But when that goes beyond the line, and for God's sake, you know, it's so far beyond the line, some of the examples of misogyny and sexism that he has described, you can't even see the line for, for dust behind you. Um, that becomes a real issue if you don't work in an environment that you believe will support you standing up, whether a man or a woman, uh, a woman, in, in, the, um, in the team and say that's not acceptable because the same people that you are calling out might be the very people that you are relying on to stay alive, you know, four hours later into the shift. So I think, you know, what I've said before, and what I'll say again uh, in relation to, to this issue is um, there's an awful lot of nonsense that's written. And I, I speak as somebody who's worked from the shop floor to the boardroom in a uniformed organization, an awful lot of verbiage that's written about the sort of C-suite culture, uh, you know, and, and how that needs to change, how the executive culture needs to change. Uh, and that's missing the point entirely. What we need across uniformed organizations, what we never invest in properly, and what we must do to fix this awful problem is invest in supervisors, frontline supervisors, the sergeants, the inspectors who are there, you know, who, who are setting the tone who are, and should be anyway, uh, operating what I call moral management, where 
the, these sorts of behaviors are spotted early and people are coached and supported. And if necessary, then if that fails enforced out of jobs where they have enormous amounts of discretionary power. I mean, we, we give police officers extraordinary amounts of power. So we have to be sure that uh, that's being used responsibly and that we do everything we possibly can to stop the wrong people getting into a uniform. Because what we've seen is, you know, a catastrophe for policing and a, you know, a human catastrophe for, for the families of people like Sarah, poor Sarah Everard, murdered by a, a police officer in, in uniform. Now, those are still extremely rare events. And you, you'll notice, John, that I've said at the end of my, my report that the people who need these reforms, that the, these awful inspection reports uh, create the, the demand for, more than anybody else, are the ordinary, decent men and women who put on a uniform in the morning, who go out to serve the public with integrity and courageousness, and sometimes don't come back at the end of a shift, who, who need th this, this issue rooted out as well. Hmm. Yeah, and it's a very striking piece. I think what particularly struck me is when you're saying that some of the some of these recruits, as well as the sexism and misogyny you mentioned, some of them have criminal records. You know, they're the kind of record where you wouldn't be able to get various other jobs, um, which I found quite striking. Um, just on that kind of initial premise of of recruiting these thousands of extra officers, how important do you think that numbers game is? to actually dealing with crime because i'm just going to plug another one of your recent pieces we had one <laughs> weeks ago which was about how kind of crime reduction targets can also be a bit illusory so i have kind of two related questions one is will will adding twenty thousand officers make a difference to crime levels and what are the kind of purposes of those targets uh, good questions i mean if you listen to uh the criminal justice commentariat um, a lot of people are saying, well, 20,000 police officers means, you know, X thousand more people in prisons, as if the purpose of those police officers primarily must be to criminalize more people. Now, I would look at it in a, in a different way, uh, which I hope sort of begins to answer your question about you know, what, what impact more numbers have. That what we have seen over the last six or seven years with austerity cuts is you know, a very rational uh, response by, by police leaders to make sure that harm, serious harm keeps getting targeted. What that means is your response policing capability has to be kept up and it's under severe pressure still, but that capability must be in place so that when you dial 999, you are likely to get a speedy response if your life is in, in danger. I mean, because if we lose that, we lose the social contract completely between the, the policing and the, and, the, and the police. But what was the cost of, of focusing, as I say, rationally on, on, on that? Well, it meant the virtual destruction of community policing, of neighborhood policing. Now, my argument would be my counter argument to the usual suspects who are saying this is going to fill the jails, is that if you restore community policing and neighborhood policing. So by that, I mean a presence of police officers who are not abstracted all the time for other duties, who are in communities, who become part of communities, who develop relationships with people in those communities who are gathering intelligence. You're going to be able to recreate some of the best uh, you know, concepts in community policing that have been all but dismantled. That's the problem solving, preventative work that police officers can do. So, you know, if you're in a community and you understand the dynamics of that community and you see particularly young people 
who are starting to go off the rails. Rather than actually accelerate their criminalization, what you can do is, and you know, police officers can't do this on their own. So there's more of a societal kind of uh, response that's needed in terms of funding. But you know, with police officers, I've seen very effective work on diverting those young people from the criminal justice conveyor belt. Because you know, one of the few things we actually know about uh, offending is that if you get kids onto a criminal justice conveyor belt early, they are likely to stay there and their criminality is likely to, to increase and the potential is going to be wasted. So I think that you know, providing the uplift in police officers is used intelligently. And you know, by that, I mean, let's stop you know, policing and pursuing hurty words and actually get people into communities where they can be of value, where you, you can reverse, you know, zones of impunity that do exist in postcodes where people are, are marooned in criminality, decent people, and where investment and entrepreneurialism can't grow because it's overlain with menace and with a rampant, you know, uh, drugs economy, for example, or very high levels of antisocial behavior. Um, those people deserve uh, a service from the police. And you know, those are often the people that lose the most when police resources have to be withdrawn to focus on harm. So you know, we want communities where people in authority are visible, present, accessible, approachable, and working to fix the problems that matter to people there. Uh, because you know, that social contract is profoundly important. And if we see it broken in places that you know, middle-class criminologists never seem to, uh, to, to visit or, or to come from, then those zones of impunity will start to expand. And I guess cynically, that's when you know, you're going to get a, a response is when you know, um, people who aren't poor and have no power and live on the other side of the train tracks are starting to get their watches and phones removed from them outside train stations by people armed with knives. Yeah, no, yeah, indeed. There was that incident in Liverpool Street a couple of weeks ago where just that happened. Um, one of the things that's very striking about the crime stats and I imagine it's true across kind of developed economies, but is that an enormous proportion are committed by a very small group of repeat offenders. And part of the problem there, I would imagine, is that recidivism in, is very high because the prison system is not rehabilitating people in any meaningful sense. I mean, you've spoken about this um, a lot yourself, as you say, you're a former governor. I mean, what is the current situation on the prison estate. I mean, you've spoken in pretty sort of bleak terms about what it's like for officers now. You mm. talked about there's been a recruitment drive. I mean, where are we? What's, if you're Rishi Sunak or Suella Braverman looking at this, what, what are you thinking in terms of the prison service? Well, you know, I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. In the end, it comes down to um, prisons being an intensely people-centric um, business. And, you know, you've obviously got what, about 80,000 prisoners in, in custody um, and you need people who are officers who are um, clearly and confidently in charge of the environments that uh, they are in, that these people in custody are in, in order for rehabilitation to be more than a polite fiction. And at the minute, unfortunately, the, the, the case is that it is a polite fiction. I mean, you've only got to look back a couple of days where the uh, chief inspector of probation lambasted 
the the fiction, I think the word was used, of uh, offender manager. So I'm trying to remember the bloody acronym. Offender management in offender management in custody, OMIC, as it's called, as uh, you know, uh, the the response to try to get rehabilitation uh, made meaningful inside prisons. And of course, what they've said is, you know, apart from the fact that it's a highly bureaucratized, overcomplicated, and inflexible uh, model uh, that nobody can understand, including the people that are supposed to be delivering it. The people that are supposed to be delivering it aren't there. So the people that we want, the prison officers that we want to be face to face with prisoners every day are simply not available because of there is a recruitment crisis. And you're, you're right. You know, I bang on boringly all the time. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done so. I've written papers about this, including with um, Boris Johnson's former uh, special advisor on, on uh, crime, uh, Rory Gagan. We wrote a paper called Control Order Hope which was centered on getting prison staff back into the front line where they can uh, interact with prisoners and help them change their lives. Uh, and that, you know, that was introduced at the Conservative Party conference in 2019 by the then Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland. You know, fast forward two or three years, and what we're seeing now is that your know, numbers of prison officers employed, despite an emergency uplift that was ironically launched by Liz Truss when she was uh, briefly uh, Lord Chancellor, uh, those prison officer numbers are actually falling. The rate of uh, leaving uh, for frontline prison staff is increasing. Um, you know, on the last available statistics, 75% of frontline prison officers left because they resigned rather than, uh, you know, re retired or, or, you know, had, had sickness or, or whatever. You know, what's behind those statistics is, again, young men and women coming in to do uh, what's incidentally one of the shortest training courses of any uh, correction service in Europe, but coming out of that, believing that they're going into prisons to help prisoners transform their lives. And the reality is that they are firefighting, you know, from the, from the start of the shift to the end of the shift to keep themselves and people alive, but there's no time at all for this ludicrous, you know, abstraction of a rehabilitative culture when you've got overwhelming levels of stress and very high levels across many prisons of, of violence and assaults against staff. So people will vote with their feet and they will leave because they see in a very still very buoyant jobs market that you can be paid more for stacking shelves in a warehouse than you will to do what ought to be one of the most societally important jobs. And without that foundation of safety, that suitable and sufficient numbers of frontline prison staff who are clearly and confidently in charge of their environment, nothing else can work. It's all a fairy story. So, you know, what, what I would say to Rishi Sunak is start with safety in prisons. Get some of the senior managers who, who seem to be, you know, obsessed by pronouns and lanyards and labels and intersectional uh, theory and all the rest of it round a table, bang their heads together and say, your job is to make prisons safe. That's now the priority. Nothing else is, you know, stop tweeting out nonsense and start protecting frontline staff to enable an environment where your prisoners can, uh, you know, have, have purposeful activities, have regimes that are meaningful and get work prepared and get off drugs. And I think one of the reasons that we don't do this, frankly, we don't tackle the safety issue head on is prisons you know many prisons are so compromised now 
by a rampant organized crime directed uh, drugs economy that the reaction against trying to dismantle that you know, meet really robustly getting in touch with that would probably be very significant disorder because it is interesting. I mean, you've got a captive audience of people stacked in places that you would you'd hesitate to put, you know, livestock sometimes who are suffering overwhelming levels of mental illness and distress. And they're your market and they'll pay a premium for things that get them out of their heads to just you know, ki kill the distress, kill the boredom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you've got a really entrenched model there that works very well. Uh, and incidentally does draw in corrupt staff as well. We're talking about uh, police corruption. Um, I, I would say there's probably a similar problem around prison officer corruption. I mean, again, if I was in an organized crime family, um, it would be a rational decision for me to make to get prison staff clean-skinned uh, connections uh, with my criminal enterprise into prisons. And you know, prisons are recruiting hand over fist. I mean, they're losing staff as quickly as they can recruit them. But you know, again, that would be a rational uh, decision to make. So th there's an enormous job, but there's a big societal bonus for getting the right leadership in place in the prison service. And I've been very critical of that, and I still am. But you know, having people in place that remember this is a law enforcement agency, not as I've said to you before, John, as like the paramilitary wing of the Quakers, uh, you know, uh, who whose job, whose function is protect to protect society, and who are resourced to do that and focus on that. And that's not some sort of punitive kind of throwaway, because if you have safe, ordered, and well-controlled prisons, which incidentally is what the prisoners want overwhelmingly, then you have the possibility. You have a canvas there to, to help create better people, to fix some of the pathologies that have got these people into custody and send them out again to be useful members of society who will, who will be net contributors rather than net takers. Yeah. Having grown up uh, in a Quaker household, I find the idea of a paramilitary wing particularly amusing. Uh -huh. I, Sorry, think I, I, I remembered that as I was speaking. Like you can cut that if you want. Quite all right. Uh, no, no, we never cut anything on this podcast at all. Um, Good. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's a very particular issue in prisons as well, again, um, that you've written about for us before, uh, to do with terrorism. And it probably intersects with all of the things that you've already discussed, including drugs, criminality, organized crime. Mm. And we're speaking almost five years to the day since the Manchester Arena bombings. Yeah. Um, how, how are our security forces, broadly speaking, and I include prisons in that, mm. dealing with the terrorist threat? And do you think it, it's got worse or more dangerous or, or better? I mean, uh, are we detecting people or are people going into prison still and becoming radicalized who weren't before they went in? Well, you know, let's start from, from the basic facts. Uh, you know, we do have around 230 um, terrorist offenders, people convicted under terrorist legislation in, in custody and the police are effective at getting further and further upstream of attacks and targeting, particularly on the extreme right, uh, targeting people who are intent uh, on causing harm. So, you know, the police have an exceptionally difficult job. Our contest strategy and the, and the security service as well, our counterterrorism strategy is due a refresh. It's quite interesting that that refresh was due out imminently, but since Tom Tugendat has become security minister, it has been put off. And I, I wonder whether it's because he saw it and thought it wasn't yet ready to be, to be released. But you know, part of that strategic refresh is bound to say the character of terrorism has changed. So we have fewer and fewer large organized plots with, you know, within their own um, world, rational actors uh, getting together for complex plots to inflict terrorism on the citizens. And we're getting more and more um, self-initiated lone actor terrorists who are mobilized, um, you know, uh, online uh, in part, but who aren't actually acting under any control or direction who go out and commit acts of, of terrorism. So we need to sort of um, change our posture, but we need to also, I suppose, um, appreciate that in terms of the security services effectiveness at spotting and picking up these people, these individuals, who uh, you know use very crude methods to inflict their terrorism? You know, a, a vehicle, a knife, and who you know appear on the scene. Sometimes it feels like out of the ether. I mean, we can talk a lot about that because they don't. But you know, in terms of how it's reported, it, it's you know the, these people who just flip. Um, they are they are you know much more difficult to to surveil, and there are more of them. So, you know, I, I don't underestimate the scale of the task of the police and the security service to deal with this. And there's some really brilliant people who are working as hard as they possibly can behind the scenes who don't get enough credit for doing so. But going back to the points that you made and referencing Manchester, um, you know, we're about to, uh, to today, we're, we're going to get the um, part two of the inquiry report that is going to deal with the response of the emergency services. And quite clearly, I mean, you know, it's been widely trailed. The um, inquiry has, you know, is online. I've dipped in and out of it as many others have. And you can see, you know, what's going to happen uh, and the features that um, the chair is going to, to um, focus on. 
you know, in, in that chaos, the doctrine was wrong. Uh, that meant that, uh, you know, people were assembling in the wrong places. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a, a, a confusion of reporting that meant the police thought there was a marauding gunman rather than a single perpetrator that pushed the, all the emergency services back. The, you know, the, the fire service didn't respond effectively until after the incident was, effect, you know, was, was finished. Uh, you know, there's also other um, more uncomfortable realities for the police, and that's the behaviour of police officers who were there and who took themselves off for a two-hour uh, extended break. Uh, you know, there, there are questions to ask about security staff who thought that Abedi, for example, was behaving suspiciously but didn't want to intervene or didn't intervene enough because they feared uh, that they would be accused of being racist. I mean, that's entirely crazy when you think about it that people were put off challenging this man um, because of perceptions of Islamophobia. Uh, you know, we, we, we can't operate a security posture based on institutional timidity like that because, you know, we're going we're to sacrifice other people in doing so. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of criticism that's directed at the uh, response. I, I would suggest the response has changed. The security service are quite good at being internally self-critical. Uh, and getting people um, like Lord Anderson, for example, the, the um, previous terror watchdog to come in, somebody with great experience and the right level of security clearance to come in and critique uh, their response. But, you know, if you go back to the Usman Khan um, inquest into the behaviour of uh, and the miscommunication dysfunction between the people who are managing uh, those risks, and if you look at the fact that uh, Abedi was a known risk and had contact with various arms of the, the state. You, you see, I think, a, a very worrying parallel here about you know, things that were known, but connections that weren't properly made, therefore action wasn't taken, therefore somebody devolved into murderous extremism uh, really in plain sight. And that's going to be very uncomfortable for those agencies. But you know, as long as we don't have hubris and defensiveness, which I'm afraid I have seen in relation to the um, Usman Khan uh, debacle. Uh, Khan, as your, your listeners will know, will know uh, was, was celebrated as a great uh, success rehabilitation inside prison, and then um, went out and this went on to murder. Yeah, yeah right. murder two, two kids who are part of the, um, two young people who are part of the, uh, the, the, the um, learning together um, program uh, that put Khan on a fatal trajectory with his, with his victims. Um, you know, and if you look at that, if you look at the reaction, the corporate reaction of the people that were involved there, you see a huge amount of defensiveness. You see a, a lack of insight. You see actually a very worrying lack of humility sometimes. And I think you know, it is easy to blame people after the fact and all the rest of it. But one of the things that is important as a cultural shift somehow is to create an atmosphere within the protective services and their risk management structures where mistakes aren't career ending or aren't perceived to be. So it's, it's a bit like, the, you know, the, um, the process they have for near misses and, and accidents uh, with pilots. Mm. Where there is the culture there where pilots can say, you know, I, I, 
I filed up here and there's, there's no consequence except the learning from that. I think if we move more towards that sort of reflective thinking and, and, and a permissive place for people to say, actually, I didn't perform very well that day and I need to do better. How, how can we make that happen? Um, you know, philosophically, we're not there and we need to go there in terms of how we interpret some of these disasters that have happened, because that's the best way of stopping them recurring. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's a, that is a very full and detailed uh, response. Um, and hopefully someone in the Home Office will be listening to your sage words. But just to finish off briefly, I mean, this week's been kind of, in the last few weeks, have been particularly kind of dominated by news about asylum seekers and asylum mm. processing centres have now become yeah. a big political issue, and particularly the Manston Centre in Kent. I mean, this brings up all sorts of issues. I think we often conflate it with a much bigger question about immigration, legal immigration. But just on this, on this question of uh, detention centres, what are your concerns in terms of the na national security implications there? Well, you know, the conditions inside Manston are unacceptable and they are, are a, an a, you know, affront to uh, our civilised values. And I think that's worth saying and reiterating. We shouldn't treat people in the way that we have that come into this country, whether they're coming in clandestinely, illegally or legally. And there's an enormous amount of parsing of the the, the, the definitions of the law. But yeah. we, we shouldn't treat people in the way that that's happening. Yeah, yeah. I should stress as well, I think there's a tendency to conflate immigrants and asylum seekers with criminality. And it's certainly not what I'm getting at with my question. It's more that I think right. you were a nefarious actor. Yeah. This kind of situation sure. makes your job that bit easier. Sure. No, I mean, and that, I, I get that. And that's what I was going on to say. I think there is a problem in the narrative which has squeezed out all possibility that the people who are traveling uh, from Albania and elsewhere clandestinely to arrive in this country are one large homogenous group and must always be seen through a lens of vulnerability. Now, that, that sort of lexicon gets invented and imposed by the UN, for example, all the way, all the way down. So that lens is the one that you know, somehow we're required to look at all of these people through. And the reality is, of course, completely different. Refugees are not one homogenous group. They're consisting of all sorts of people. They'll, they'll consist of people like you and I, John, who would be doing exactly the same thing for our families in, their, uh, you know, in that situation. But they also consist of other people, good and bad. And therefore, they must consist, in my opinion, of some people who are traveling clandestinely to this country to commit harm or who are highly involved in criminality or an alternative group of people who are traumatized by where they've come from, who are going through traumatic journeys and who arrive in this country, get processed through an asylum center, and then basically thrown to the dogs. Maybe some, some you know, bed sit in the middle of nowhere, um, supposedly look at, looked after by a broke local authority, potentially seen occasionally by a, you know, a broke NGO. And um, those are the people that we need to be concerned about because there is a relationship between those people, those two groups I've described, and violent extremism. And we have to start talking about that. We need to start talking about getting a system in place that doesn't exist at the moment where we are able to spot those people 
who are intent on harm. I don't believe we've got the capability. And we're also able to keep an eye on people. And we've got, you know, an awful record here of failed asylum seekers who go on to commit acts of terrorist murder. Uh, so we've got to find a system that is able to deal with them. Integration is part of the solution. Properly supported the NGOs that we've got. Other countries can do it. Why aren't we? If we're not doing it, these people often devolve into murderous extremism, uh, again, while hiding in plain sight. Well, Ian, that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for joining us here on the CapEx podcast. It was an absolute pleasure and I hope you at home agreed. Thank you all as well for listening as ever. Uh, I just want to take a moment to inform our listeners about a live event we've got coming up on November the 17th. I will be in conversation with Richard Reeves, who you may have heard on the podcast. We'll be talking about his new book of boys and men, uh, which is about the struggles facing men and boys in education, the labour force and in the kind of general culture war. Um, that promises to be an absolutely fascinating event and tickets include a signed copy of the book from Richard. So just go to uh, capex.co for more details of that or have a look on our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram uh, for more ticket details. Thanks very much and do tune in next week for another topical episode of the CapEx podcast. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.